It's four o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means. It's time for <clears throat> excuse me, time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah, baby. Woo! This week, starring very special guest, Mr. Rob Shirelli. Today, we're going to talk about mixing with intent. Uh, and we are joined once again by my friend, actually, I consider more like family, Mr. Rob Shirelli. Here's the part where I make Rob blush when I read, uh, and this is, uh, correct me if any of this is wrong, but this is a bio I've had for a couple of years now. Rob Shirelli is a record producer. Let's not do that this time. Let's oh, just not do it this time. Can Let's I just get right into it? Can I just name some of the artists, please? Oh my God, for God's sake! <laughs> He's a multi-Grammy winner. He's worked with Will Smith, Christina Aguilera, Leanne Rimes, Kirk Franklin, Mary Mary, Janet Jackson, Jermaine Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Keiko Mitsui, Coolio, Ray Charles, American Idol, Pink, Johnny Mathis, Paula Abdul, Diana Ross, and Vogue, Ice Cube, The Four Tops, Yolanda Adams, The Temptations. Blah, 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 on and on and on. It just keeps getting better. Um, so there you have it. Rob's very short and truncated bio. Sitting Ooh. in his control room, uh, about four or five houses away from me, I actually had my wife, I was trying to text him, go, Rob, we got to do the tech setup. And, it's fine, uh, Michael. Don't get so, this is fine. Oh, it's fine. But you don't understand. Wirecast is twitchy. And about 40% of the time when I go to hook it up, there's a problem. So I was really nervous. I sent my wife over to their house to knock on the door. Oh, my God. I'm in the shower. I'm getting banged on the door. What's <laughs> Pretty funny. And I had to shave, you know. Me too. I shaved just for you. I had like a four-day beard going on, and I decided to shave. Right. Um, so I, before we get started, did you watch the game? I did watch the game. Now, see, I, as well as I know you, and I was sitting there thinking of you. I was going to text you, but I know you don't like to be bothered during games, especially the Super Bowl. But I thought Rob probably isn't very happy because Brady left New England, and New England is Rob's team. And so Rob was probably rooting for Mahomes. <clears throat> no, not a chance. Huh? I'm a Brady fan through and through. I was jumping for joy. I am a Tom Brady fan, so... I couldn't be happier. Well, you. I've got to say, I think Tom Brady is the shiz, man. That guy deserves all the accolades. I mean, he's accomplished stuff that nobody else has done. And the best right. part is he got to just drive home after the game, <laughs> go home and have a little celebration with his lovely wife and children. Mm -hmm. um, but Mahomes is a special player, man. That kid is... Oh, yeah. He's, yeah, no question. He makes my heart race when I see him do like an underhand lateral pass when he's got four guys ready to pounce on him. Amazing. Marvel. He's a marvel. There's no question about it. Yeah, yep. we're, we're going to, once Brady is retired and gone fishing, we're going to be hearing uh, Patrick Mahomes will be the next greatest of all time, I think. We'll see. Long way to go. But yeah, great game in terms of, uh, you know, <laughs> Brady fan. Yeah. So what are, we doing, what are we doing today? Let's do it. We oh, are going to plug in a new little utility that I got out here for you guys today. Oh, cool. You're going to give one away? Yep. Awesome. Yep. All right. Well, cool. uh, I, I wonder if anyone's ever done it. I don't know if anyone's done this, but it seems so obvious that there's probably a hundred of them out there. But it's a little text app that you can put in a plug-in slot and keep your lyrics and notes and stuff in there. It's a pretty cool little thing. That's cool. Anyway. That's very cool. Um yeah, it's like session notes, like, you know, because, you know, if I go back to sessions a year from now, I need the notes. The record company asked for this. They wanted 
you know, shorter fade or, you know, these are the lyrics. If I'm going into a session, I have them in front of me. They're right in this, you know, it's pretty cool. It's a cool little thing. I, I got to say, like it, you know. uh, this morning or no, uh, yesterday morning, I was playing around with your uh, plug in the Westlake uh, EQ6. Uh, oh, remember, yeah. uh, my friend in New York, who I think has great ears, said to me it was the best sounding EQ plugin that he'd ever heard. And I was checking it out on a vocal the other day. Sounds great. Put it on a snare drum. Amazing. But then uh, you said that it, it has similar characteristics to an old classic uh, EQ, which I'm familiar with and was always uh, one of my favorites on snare drums. There's something about uh, jangly guitars and snare drums through that EQ. Oh, yeah. The API. It's like an API on steroids. That's what I say. Yep. Well, it yeah, works. It works. And boost and cut, man. That is that thing is smoking. But anyway, and not noisy, because uh, you, you couldn't do eighteen dB on a console and not have it sound like. Ah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, anyway, in case you guys don't know, Rob actually is the owner of FinalMix.biz and sells um, some really incredible plugins for like dirt cheap dollars. So check that out. And as he mentioned, we're going to give away to everybody watching the live show today is going to get his latest and greatest invention. So very cool. Um, <laughs> Wandering Rob Robot Studio says, can a good mix save a bad song? No. <laughs> but um, a good mix can, can make a, uh, an okay song sound like a hit. I mean, there are... Hits have a sound. There is something to say about it. You can do an awful lot, you know. But if it doesn't have a great hook, it still doesn't have a great hook. It polishes a turd, as we love to say in the industry. You need a better internet connection, Michael. You're all distorted. Really? I think I'm fine. Uh, anybody in your house playing online video games or anything while we're live? Because you look good. Me? I'm fine. It's you that's okay. distorted. Weird. All right. Uh, are you guys in the chat room seeing and hear, hearing us okay? Yeah, sounds fine there. Okay. All right. So uh, uh, Rob knows this, but and some of you guys know this, but many, many years ago, I, I got a two-inch master tape. You can't hear me? Sounds like... Put on right. your earbuds. It's not the earbuds. Huh. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Um, anyway, many years ago, uh, I bought on eBay a 16-track, 2-inch master of the Eagles song, Take It Easy. Um, it actually showed up. It, came, it was found in a garbage dumpster behind Olympic Studios in London, um, made its way to America, and I am the proud owner of it, and a mutual friend of ours digitized it. And I recently got Logic X uh, and dumped it in there, and I've been playing around with it, having a blast lately. And um, as I was working with it, it made me think of something I don't think I ever actually thought of in my entire career back in the day when I was working in studios, which is, did I have an intent when I started a mix? So as I listened to this Eagles thing, 
Um, it, it's a pretty complete master. It's got background vocals on it. It's got a final lead vocal on it. It's got lead guitar parts on it, but it's not the one that made it to the record or to the radio. And I was listening to it. Glenn Johns, who's a very famous engineer producer, did Led Zeppelin and a bunch of other big groups back in the day. Um, recorded it and I noticed that he'd already done bounced down like uh, background vocals to a stereo pair but you could hear Glenn Fry's lead vocal from across the room bleeding into it and then there's Randy Meisner doing his high harmony part uh, on some of the lead lines some of the lead vocal lines and that shows up on the far left because they'd done the bounce now back in my day, we would have just mixed that one section. We would have mixed the whole song, then gone back and remixed that section and panned that vocal down the middle because otherwise it sounds like it's out in the left field and then just edited the quarter inch mixtape so that that section was the same mix, but now with that vocal panned down the middle, which is where it should be. And I started thinking, you know, I think I'm going to try and mix this like Bill Simzik, who did the later Eagle, Eagle Records, would. He had more of a silky, shimmery, glossy sound than the stuff that Glenn Johns worked on. So I had an intent. I had a goal. I had a target when I started mixing. And I called Rob up and I said, you know, I've been talking about this mixing with intent thing. Would you come on Taxi TV and, and discuss that with our crowd? So he said, sure. Um... So Rob has mixed hundreds, probably thousands of songs for clients that hired him, some just to mix, other clients that he recorded and mixed, and yet other clients where he was the engineer, producer, and the mixer. So my question to you is, do you start in a general sense when you sit down in any of those scenarios, and then we'll get to the particulars on those, do you sit down and go, okay, for this song, my goal is to do X with the mix, or do you just shove up the faders, take the lay of the land in, and then start making each track sound pretty and get a balance, or, or do you start with intent? Well, you definitely have to start with intent. There's no, in my, I don't know any of my colleagues, anybody who, who, does, it, who does it any different. I think the most you know, the first thing is knowing who the artist is. And if it's someone who's established, then there's a, a history there. So, um, you know, understanding where they came from is, is important to know where they're going to go and what, what, what sort of, um, you know, direction they may take. So understanding the artist, their voice, the sensibilities, the things that have worked for them, that's all really important. If it's a new artist, then it might be a little bit different. What I, I love to do with new artists is I like to find some, you know, carve them their own little sort of slice of the pie sonically or, or if it's a production, you know, certainly as a producer, you want to make sure that they have their own little sound, their own little, you know, bring out any of the, you know, the, the things that are unique about them. And, um, yeah, so, you, you know, it's not casting, uh, you know, casting feathers to the wind. Absolutely, we're starting with intent and we're going to approach it in a sensible way. This was vision, you know. And then there's another piece, which is A&R and then the marketing component. Some people want their songs to be, you know, pop, you know, or, or have the potential of, of, of reaching a wide audience. Others want it to be deliberately independent and stay indie, and they don't really care about the 
you know, the marketing component. So all that kind of stuff comes in in various degrees. But if you're serving the song and the artist in, in, in the underlying production, then I think, yeah, you're, you're probably on the right track. Uh, well, people are saying now they're getting buffering. Uh, I don't know. We got good signal here. Don't know. Um, anyway, yeah, try refreshing, you guys. Um, okay, so then my next question is, let's take each of those outside influences that may affect your intent when you start a mix. And I, I completely agree with you that... Uh, First, you have to serve the song and the artist, their vision, but you may have to deal with the, the label's vision. The label may want something to sound more pop or more radio-esque, whereas the band wants it to sound more indie. And uh, so you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, you want the band to be happy with what you've given them. On the other hand, you want the label to be happy so that they come back to you with other clients as well. So how do you deal with that uh, kind of tug of war? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because a lot of, you know, a lot of people that I, I've been fortunate, a lot of people that I work with have a real good um, respect for one another's opinion. And, and the goal is to arrive at the best thing for for the song and the artist and the record and the record company. And there is, you know, there really is a, a, a real good, uh, I mean, with the people that I've been lucky to work with, there's a real team sort of game you know it's it's really a team effort and and i've learned that if somebody makes a comment however it may be bizarre or seem weird or won't work i never discount it i said let's give it a try it's easier to try it and then it'll reveal itself to everybody if it's if it's working or it isn't i mean and everyone has a pretty good sense of that i think and i think a lot of you know which is fine and that's a little bit more tricky but um but it's, I mean, that's kind of the game. You just have to sort of wade through the waters and, and figure it out. And, and, it, and the best ideas win. I mean, that's, as long as your, your ego doesn't get too much in the way of the stuff, no, meaning you know, nobody's ego, just trying to find the best ideas, well, good. You know, at the end of the day, you have, you know, um, you have a shot. With, with my partners, Nate and Kaylee, who you know well, We've ha we have this thing where anybody can say no. It's not a democracy. If I say no, it's a no. <laughs> Kaylee says no, it's a no, even if Nate and Rob say yes, you know. And, and that served us really well. If somebody says, man, it just doesn't feel right to me, then okay, then it's probably not the right thing. We go to the next, and we'll, we try to refine the idea, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's really that kind of idea where you're trying to work together to get the best thing you possibly can. And it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not easy. It's not easy, but that's it. I remember the joy when it, you had a band that just got signed to a label. They're making the first record, first time they've ever been in a pro studio, and they come in with their eyes twinkling, and they're like floating on air, and they're so excited. And they're very malleable and very agreeable. And then they have a hit record, and they come back a year and a half, two years later to do the sophomore record. And they walk in, and their posture is different, their attitude is different, their clothes is different. And they walk in, and now everybody in the band has a vision for how they'd like it to be. And that was always a tough spot to be in, because um, especially if you're the engineer or mixer, and the, the producer is wrestling with them. You can't hear me, huh? Wow. It's fluttering. I don't know what to tell you. Can you check and see if anybody at home on your end, because I mean, the signal strength here is really good. 
Um, can you see if anybody's like doing an online video game or streaming a movie or anything? I'll take a look. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can see you and hear you perfectly, and I can hear me and see me perfectly. Huh. Okay, be right back. All right, I'll entertain the troops while you're gone. <laughs> it's funny. Some of you are saying it's good there, and others uh, are saying it's not so good. Wow. Um, anyway, uh, sounds fine here. Yeah. Uh, sounds fine, except when it buffers. <sighs> it's always a pain in the butt whenever we do these things where I bring a second, uh, you know, a guest in. Always technical issues. Um, and it's always uh, the, the upload speed of the guest is the problem. Anyway, um, you know, worst comes to worst. If it persists, I'll just call Rob on the phone and we'll do one of those. A pain in the buffer. Yes, it is. Uh, yes, I have seen the Bee Gees documentary. Uh, it does feature criteria. Yeah, baby. And I know many of the people in the documentary. They interviewed Carl Richardson at length. And uh, he was one of my guys for a Taxi Road Rally prequel. I interviewed him for either 90 minutes or two hours. He's great. Uh, All right. Any better? Can you hear me now? Um, try again, because no, not yet. Interesting, because people... Hey, well. Yeah, hey, people... Well. All right. Was anybody playing a game or watching a TV well, show? Well, my or... wife teaches until 4 o'clock, 5th ah. grade, so she had her Zoom thing going, so that may have done it. Let's see how it goes from here. Okay, cool. All right. So... Um, Anyway, uh, where were we? Oh, we were talking about the, the sophomore album syndrome. Um, okay, so you're talking about all the different influences. And uh, so when you sit down and you start a mix, give us a scenario and tell us about your workflow. Like what thoughts do you have privately with yourself? Okay, this is what I need to do. What do you start with? How do you proceed? At what points are you checking with the people in the room to say, do you like the way this is shaping up? Any of that inside baseball you can give us. Okay, so if I get a record, usually I'll have, um, I ask the client to send uh, an MP3 so I can hear what they're, you know, what they've been living with. Um, but I usually don't listen to that right away. I'll throw up the tracks. I'll listen to everything. I'll kind of hit play. And as I listen to the song, I'll kind of organize my tracks. The drums go up the top, and I highlight them in blue. That's what I like. And then light blue is for the bass. I put it underneath. And the guitars are in green, and I have keyboards in sort of a purple thing. And I'm listening, and I'm organizing tracks, and, and kind of seeing the lay of the land, what, how complicated it is. You know, lead vocals are in like a, a gold color or yellowish color. Backgrounds are you know, amber, and I'll be, you know, listen, listen, solo something, listening, and it all kinds of sinks in and starts to take shape, and I get a sense of, you know, of, of what to do. It's sort of, um, you've, you've heard thousands and thousands of songs. I've probably done 10,000 mixes in my life. Wow. You know, it's a lot of stuff, and it kind of just, over time, starts to make sense. Like, you know that you know, if it's an R&B record or a gospel record, there's certain sensibilities, it's a rock record or country record, certain things you kind of feel real quick. 
every now and then there's something that's like, whoa, where is this? This came out of left field, and this is going to really be unique and different, and it has maybe a slightly different uh, approach. But in general, you know, things do fit into a framework. A pop record has usually drums, bass, you know, guitar, keyboards, and vocals, and background vocals. So, you know, the, the same elements will apply, even if it's, you know, hip-hop. Maybe it's a rap or... You know, the drums might hit a little bit differently than a straight pop record or a dance record, but the same elements are there. And, um, you know, if you were to look at a thousand of my sessions or more, you'd, you'd see them. The drums are up top, they're blue, and there's you know, light blue on the bass, green is guitar, and so forth. You'll They all look pretty much the same. And, and, that and that's, that's because force of habit, you automatically know where your eye goes there without having to look at the label for the track because of the color coding. Well, well the color coding gives me an ability to get to something quick. So if it's yeah. a drum sound, I'm not, I don't want to start looking for it. I know, you know, I just hit the button that says, you know, page up and I'm at the top and there's my drums. If it's in the vocal sit at the bottom. So drums, top, vocal, bottom so if i want to go to the lead vocal i just hit page down and and then there's the lead vocal i can get to a quick especially if the artist is in the room you know the artist this is a good kid my son is coming over with my coffee when i don't know what the hell <laughs> yo robert it. it's not right hey robert uh, <laughs> how are you buddy i'm right. good you good thanks thanks so um you know, the ability to get to something really quick is, impo is important. It's, you know, if I spent, if I have to look for shakers, right, they're, they're <laughs> at the top, they're under the, they're under the drums, kick, snare, hat, you know, and then, you know, shakers and percussion and stuff below that. It's easy, you know, so being able to get to something quickly is a big, is a big deal. And when I work on a console, Okay, it's the same deal. All the drums are on the left. The kick or the 808s are all the way to the left. Then there's the drums, then the bass, and then my vocals. There's usually the center section of the console, right, which is where the chair is. And right under my, you know, my right hand is the lead vocal on track 25. It's usually track 25, depending on how, how big the console is, but it's right there under my right hand. That's the lead vocal. And then to the right of that go any doubles, harmonies, backgrounds. Right. So I know exactly where I'm going in terms of layout, um, whether it's in the box or on a console. I want to be able to get to it fast and I want to be consistent about it. I don't you know, I don't want to. I mean, that's just that's just a logistical thing. That's not a, even a musical thing. That's just, you know, laying out your tools, you know, in, in a comfortable place. Put them in your tool belt. Real easy. Yep. But always have. Same tools in the same places so you could shut your eyes and find them. I completely yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Um, do you start, uh, you mentioned that you work in several genres, which not a lot of mixers do. You know, there, there are some people that kind of specialize in music that would fall under the urban umbrella. Others are almost strictly country. And yet I've seen you do rock, pop, um, hip hop, uh, you know, just literally kind of every genre that would hit radio and probably some that wouldn't do you start your mixes differently uh let's say hip-hop would you start a hip-hop mix differently than you would a country mix no no i really wouldn't i i mean i've been lucky because you know i started in in 60s rock you know i grew up with that from my brother 
And then I went into jazz and I studied jazz and I played in orchestras. I, I have classical, you know, um, you know, legit training, as they say. And then from there, went to pop and, and got, you know, uh, Cuban influences when I was in Miami. And, and then hip hop came and fell in love with that, too. So I've been really lucky to grow up in a time where I was exposed to different types of music. So but a lot of it is, is there are a lot of similarities. There really are. And now hip hop, for example, is in everything. It's in country, it's, yep. you know. It's in it's in every kind of music. And um, you know, I'm really, really, really lucky that I got, you know, exposed to it and, and got to work with some great uh, hip hop artists early on. But um, this the approach to do we have you know new elements that come in in the bridge? Is there even a bridge? Is there a rap in the middle of the song? Um, are the backgrounds you know? the same thing every chorus or do they grow do they get bigger how does the song develop like that's that's all kinds of stuff that i think you know we all tend to expect just just as listeners you know so as a mixer we want to just bring that stuff out and as you listen whether it's hip hop or r&b or or gospel or pop it's all kind of that's all of the stuff that my you know we want to take in when we listen and and, and begin a mix it's uh, so much easier for somebody that's done it hundreds and then thousands of times because you don't have to really, I, I remember not thinking about stuff. You just intuitively go for it and kind of, uh, you're like water where you take the shape of the space that you're put in without thinking about it that much because you've done it so many times and you run into so many of the same um, scenarios. Uh, let's talk about, Things like budget. I remember uh, Remember, I, I did a record with Melanie called Ballroom Streets that was a double live album where re we recorded the entire album end to end every night, 10 nights in a row in the studio with an audience. The way I set up the microphones, the way I recorded stuff, because I knew I was going to be editing two inch 24 track tape for that. So I couldn't improve my guitar sound on night number two. Whatever I locked in on on night number one had to stay that way for all 10 nights. Otherwise, I couldn't cut the, the two inch without creating a nightmare. So I was actually foreseeing the mix in my head as I was setting up the room and getting my sounds in advance of that first night. Um, I also knew that we didn't have a huge budget for that record and we had a very finite amount of time. We couldn't just go open-ended. So do you have to consider things like budgetary concerns, uh, delivery dates, things like that? I can't hear a word you're saying, so I'm trying to figure out why, but you sound like kind of a motorboat. Really? There you um, go. Now you're okay. back. All so right. I haven't changed anything. About budgets yeah do do budgets influence um how you approach something if you know you've got a, a short amount of time and a skinny budget will you do things that you might not do um if you had a longer timeline and more money no nope. budget doesn't play into anything when i mix it's um it is what it is i mean i i whether i get a big budget to mix or a small, I do the same level of work every time. It never comes into play. I mean, it does come into play whether or not there's a studio of, you know, whether you can use a big studio or not. It does come into play when you're producing, whether you can hire live strings, 
or not, you know, stuff like that. But when it comes to, you know, you know, doing the best I can, and it's the budget doesn't have anything to do with that. That's um, you know, and sometimes I mean, you know, you know, sometimes the songs aren't good, you know, you know, and it's it's only you can only do so much. I mean, you know, sometimes it's just not there on the tracks. I mean, I don't mean that. You know, sometimes it's not in the grooves, and you know, you got to really dig deep, and it takes a long time. And that's, and sometimes it comes in in a matter of minutes, and it sounds tremendous without even, you know, doing anything. You know, uh, you know, with the when you mentioned, I think earlier, the Eagles tapes, right? So I remember when you brought those by the house. I have them somewhere here. I have something. Uh, I have a bunch of these old ones with you know. With great great recordings of the past and you put these the eagles you put the four or five or eight tracks whatever it was up you know and it sounds tremendous i mean it sounds great yeah. sounds like the eagles you know then it just becomes a matter of taste doesn't it yeah it does i mean i've been spending a lot of time with that particular thing it's actually 10 tracks it's got pretty much everything on the record with the exception of the banjo that made it to the final version on the radio um, but there are things like they recorded Glenn doing the lead vocal at the same time they were doing a pass of the background vocals. Um, so there's a lot of his bleed from about 20 feet away into the backgrounds. So if you split them left and right um, and put him down the middle, it pulls to one side because there was bleed mm -hmm. in, in the background. So those are the things that you learn by being a pro engineer and having those things thrown in your face and having to solve problems on the fly like that. Whereas somebody who has not worked in a pro situation, they might not have that thrown at them, which leads me to my next question. Is it, how different is it when you are mixing something that you engineered and you organize the tracks and you know the quality of the recording and everything versus somebody else's stuff that you're having to learn and fix? Ha ha. Two answers to that. Okay. In the beginning, okay, so in the beginning when I produced and mixed, I thought I was doing a good job. But I realized that I wasn't at that point in my life um, experienced enough or good enough or whatever you want to call it to to handle both jobs because the mixer comes in with objectivity and that is tremendously important I mean that is a huge deal and having the producer you know available if you're a mixer as the sounding board and the you know the general you know vision of the record that's hugely important so when you wear both hats for me really difficult and i made a lot of mistakes by you know maybe emphasizing things that i thought was important that really weren't you know they're important to me as a producer and you know isn't this so brilliant you know and this kind of <laughs> crap you know and um and the truth is is that you know, looking back at that, I I think, geez, if I was objective or if I gave it to somebody objective, they would have hit the mute button on, you know, four or five of those things and would have made the record better. So so that brings me to the second answer. So now when I produce, I do mix my own productions, but 
what I try to do is consciously keep things simple and make sure that what it is 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 kind of there and it's in the mixes are very simple for me now but that's only because you know maybe others learned quicker but it took me an awful long time to, to get that skill and I'm not you know I'm not sure that I'm, I'm the best person to mix everything that I would produce that may not be the case that and um, you know that that's a good one but when I do get other people's productions and I mix it I think they come to me because of taste. I have a certain taste, and maybe because, you know, they have they need another set of ears to bounce it off. They, there are mixes that I get from people. When I put up the tracks, they sound incredible. Okay, and all they really want is you know five ten percent more. You know, they just want right. a little something that they think they can get out of it. And in this game, it's a game of inches, and sometimes that's that's what they need so they might go to a mixer like me or anybody you know to bring some objectivity into the into the process and maybe you know maybe just hear some things that are overlooked or or refine it a bit you know or bring an edge to it or some little thing that makes the difference other times you know folks may have been struggling with the mix because maybe they tried to do it themselves they feel like they didn't quite get it and then they just want someone to come on in and and really just you know blow it up and put it back together, which which is fine and fun too. So I, I think the thing is is to keep in mind that there's you know mixers bring objectivity. So do engineers and A and R guys and producers and artists. I mean everybody sees things a little bit different now. There's a story I may have told on Taxi TV. It's not my story, but but it's a great. Um, it's a great one. So I don't want to misquote the band, but it's a big band that I, that the story goes that a, a band with horns and everything, they, they decided that everyone would, would be able to, they all have their hands on their fader. So the bass player would handle the bass, the guitar player would handle the guitar and so forth. And then they, they get the levels. And then of course, in no time, all of the levels are all the way up because the guitar player would push his, the drummer would push their level up. You know, the vocalist would push their level up and so forth. And then, okay, so you try it a different way. So, okay, so the drummer now gets to control the bass, the bass player gets to control the guitar, and then all the levels end up coming all the way down. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is, is musician in the band, you know, they're, they're, they may be a little tunnel vision on their own part. So when I approach the mix, you know, I've, I've played drums forever. I'm a bass player really by trade, but I can play guitar and I have a little piano chops. Can't sing crap, you know, but been around it enough. So so I try to imagine being the drummer. Is the drummer going to be happy with this? Is Did I get what he's trying to do? Is the bass player going to be happy? How's the singer going to feel about it? Most of all, the singer, you know. And, um, and that's served me pretty good to kind of look at it that way when I'm doing a mix or a production or, w or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. All of the, all of the, if you give everybody a fader, they turn their their instrument up louder. Than the rest. I've I've told you about the quadulator, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's the story, but uh, you know, is if they put that. <laughs> your, your secret's going to be out. <laughs> well, it's not like I'm working in the studio anymore. Uh, now I'm, uh, you know, just a guy, another guy with logic at, at home. But yeah, the short version for those of you who are new to Taxi TV is that we actually had a thing. And it wasn't my original idea. I actually stole this idea from Ronnie and Howie Albert at Criteria. But 
we had an official looking box that I'm looking around, you know, here, I've got a prop. We had a little metal box about that big and we put a knob on it with like one to 10, put an LED and a toggle switch on it. And we took like a, a three or six foot um, patch cord and ran it through and put a rubber grommet on each side. And uh, if I had a producer that was a particular pain in the butt, I would say to my assistant, Paul, Paul, go grab me the quadrilator. He'd go, really? Are you sure? We're not supposed to let anybody know about that. No, no, go get it. These guys are cool. And we would plug it into tape, mach tape machine return into channel line in, which was the signal path that was already there anyway. Um, so it was just passing straight signal. And, and the toggle switch and the LED weren't connected to anything. It was just a nine volt battery. <laughs> in there and and we would turn it on and i would say the producer turn the knob until it sounds right what do you want it on the vocal yeah yeah give it to me give it to me and you would see these famous producers sitting there turning the knob you know going there it is that's perfect man this thing sounds great well don't tell anybody we let you use it i can't tell you how many times we got away with that <laughs> I tell you a dick. <laughs> I know. It's a good thing nobody had a Phillips head screwdriver to open up the box. Anyway, um, let's see. Uh, I'm looking looking down my list of questions. Um, we've covered a lot of it already. Um, let's let's talk about workflow. Top tent is. Um, you're going to serve the song, serve the artist, serve the other forces that be. How long does it take you? I know that there's no absolute answer to this because one mix could take you four hours, another mix could take you four days. Is there kind of an average and do you get to a point in the mix where you've got your balance and you've got your delays and you've got your reverb and you've got your EQ, everything but your final moves down? Do you call the artist or the... The, you know, the people who have a vote into the room and say, here's what I've got so far, anything that sticks out to you, or am I going in a good direction? At what point do you get? How many hours in, on average, do you get to that point? What kind of feedback do you take? How do you ingest that feedback? How much of it do you act upon? All those kinds of things. Right, it's tough, you know, but I would say that if, the, if everything's recorded pretty well, you know, um, my assistant does some cleanup and stuff like that. I don't count those hours. But in terms of mixing time, a few hours, I might put three or four hours into it, and I should get it pretty close. That doesn't mean I'll send it, though, because sometimes I need to, you know, I may need a couple of hours of vocal rides or something, or there may be some details. But, you know, four or five hours, I will have the mix pretty pretty darn close it i'll feel like it's done i'm not sending it out if i don't feel like it's there I, I won't do that i don't usually say you know it's very unusual if i were to say hey guys you know is this okay do you like this direction i mean i i gotta be pretty confident in what i'm doing and i have to feel like you know if i have to you know, if I have that type of doubt, I don't know that I'm the right guy. I hate to say it. It doesn't happen mm. too often. But I, I would like to get that thing really close. I like to get it to be, you know, close enough where if they decide that's the one and they press it, I'm good with it. So it's got to be really close. Really um, By the way. Not so much with internal, like with my own company. I'll pass it around. You know, your guy, James Koshin, uh, who I love. I just talked to him today. Oh, cool. Packers fan. Okay. 
uh, you know, we'll bounce things around. I'll send things, see what he thinks, you know, stuff that he's worked on or whatever. Nate, Kaylee, Seth, guys that I that are in the company, you know, when we're doing productions, we bounce things around one another all the time, you know. But when it's a mix that someone's coming directly to me for, I want them to hear it pretty darn close, you know, pretty darn. Yeah. Um. Do you ever get to that point where they hear it pretty close and as a last thing? Like, for instance, uh, the other day I put uh, Rob, as I mentioned earlier, sells some really cool software for incredibly low prices at finalmix.biz. Uh, make sure you got the .biz right. And one of the things is, is a plug-in called Mixbus Lite. And over the weekend, I had this mix going on where I was mimicking what Bill Simzik would do with the Eagles. And it was the first time I ever used an exciter. Um, prior to, to using Mixbus Lite, I was using the exciter, that plug-in that comes stock with Logic X. And I was really impressed with how it sounded. I think I had, um, if I remember correctly, I had Neve EQ uh, on my master bus. Um, just barely any on there, just wanted the sound of Neve going through there. And it, it was pretty, you know, close to indiscernible, but it didn't mess anything up, and I feared it couldn't hurt. I also had a stereo compressor, but I can't remember what I was using. And then just for giggles, I, I threw on this Exciter thing, because I remember having an a one of the, Aphex sent me the very first model of uh, Aphex Oral Exciter in the 70s that they made, late 70s, I think and said, here, hang on to it for a few months. Let us know how you like it. And if you want to mention it in any of the articles you write, that would be awesome. Uh, and then a couple of years later, I got a thing called a BBE Maximizer. And I never really liked either of those. I, I never liked them well enough that I kept them on a record. They were interesting, but they weren't great. So I, I used the Exciter the other day that came with Logic, and I went, wow, this is the first time I'm using something across the stereo, <clears throat> across the mix bus, that just adds that glossy thing that you hear on records that everybody wants to achieve. And mm -hmm. it was like, you know, turned it up to 18% saturation and magically it was like, wow, sounds really good. So then the other day I was trying uh, Mix Bus Light from you, which is a one fader gizmo. It's got like four or five detents for like pop or R&B or rock or whatever. Um, and then like more and less knob on it kind of. and. And a fader, uh, and, and you can't, ex it'll let you get to maximum level without exceeding it. Uh, it sounded really, really good. I have no idea what's going on inside of that plugin, but whatever it is, it is kind of idiot proof. So good job on that one. It's got all that crap in there and it's just used just enough so that you can't screw it up. It's supposed to be, you know. <laughs> and by the way, for those folks who want the, um, free plug-in it's this is the code it's just taxi 2021 all right um, great and how long so they should go to finalmix.biz they can download your new thing um what's the name of the thing that they're downloading uh it's called um track notes and it's under the utilities tab it's not in the main folder with the rest of the plugins and the main you know menu there's you know there's a menu across the top of every website. Click on Utilities, add it to your cart, and make sure you apply the code TAXI2021, no spaces, just, you know, TAXI2021, and then it'll be zero, 
and share it with your friends if you like. You know, give them the code. It's all right. It'll be up for a week or so. Cool. Uh, wow, that's very generous of you and kind. And it sounds like a, like you're right. Why didn't anybody ever think of that before? Why didn't they build it into Pro Tools or Logic or any of the other DAWs? And it's probably out there, and I just don't know it. You know, <laughs> so you know, who knows? Um, okay let's see oh uh, let's talk radio mixes um radio obviously counts a little bit less every year and playlists on streaming services seem to count more do you mix differently for a single that you know is going to be on streaming services like spotify or pandora versus what you would how you would mix it for radio I'm trying to get your audio clear. It's coming in and out about every five minutes it changes. So I think you asked me about a radio mix or something. Radio mix versus streaming mix. Is there a difference? Well, the length of the mix, maybe. If somebody has a four and a half or five minute song, then you have to shorten it for radio. So it's, you know, three and a half minutes or something. But I don't do a separate mix for Pandora or spotify or apple or you know uh kiss 108 or any of that stuff it's, it's <laughs> the final mixes the main mix is the main mix you know the mastering guys do their job from there and um and that's it now now clubs are a little bit different if it's for a club then we may we may make some adjustments if we know we're going to radio and to clubs mm-hmm you know, a club mix will tend to be a lot simpler, and a lot of the detail will just leave that out, and and uh, and we might push the drums or something depending on the music. But you know, that may be some slight changes in a club mix. But generally, no, it's just yeah, there's a main mix, and that's it, and 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 we're rolling. Um, any recommendations? As I've been playing with Logic and watching tutorials and, and reading what people are saying on forums, it seems like the most universal problem people have is getting a really good bass sound. And I realize that varies wildly from what would be a great bass sound you know, in the urban market versus the pop market or country market, although pop and country are probably somewhat closer depending on the type of pop. Um, back in my day, uh, which is like 40 years ago. You plugged a bass guitar, usually a Fender Precision bass, maybe a jazz bass, into the best direct box you could afford. And then you would uh, run it through a compressor, probably an LA-2A. Uh, hey, there's a bass now. And, uh, and EQ a little bit. That's how you got your bass sound. Sometimes you combine, <laughs> was it jazz bass or a P bass? That's a jazz bass. I have a P bass in the other room, though. Um, so any recommendations for how to get a radio-ready bass sound on, on, let's say, on a country record uh, or a singer-songwriter, something that's more organic, less electronic? I'll tell you what. It's like anything else, and it's going to sound silly, but it starts with a great instrument. You have to have a good instrument. Now, I've got... I mean, the bass that I just showed you hasn't had its strings changed since 1986. <laughs> and it sounds, it is the best sounding bass I've ever heard in my life, and I've recorded a ton of them. Now, that bass, you plug it in, and I ru actually run it through 
my signal chain at home is using this Ascent 1, which is a preamp that these guys gave me, really good Phoenix Audio guys. And um, in there, uh, the DI is fantastic. And I run that into an LA3, okay? And that bass sound, I never have to touch it. I'd never wow. have. There's no EQ. There's nothing on it. And and I have another ba jazz bass, which has um, an original 1963, but, but fresh strings. So if I want a brighter tone, I use that. Hoffner, I have a precision with flat wounds. So, you know, uh, choosing a good instrument is a big deal. And um, one of the things that I've encountered is good is not expensive. So there are some bases I've gotten had to mix it's many times these, you know, four and five string bases that have these high output, you know, multi-thousand dollar pickups with this high fidelity everything in there and it sounds like crap i mean just because it's an expensive thing doesn't mean it's gonna you know translate right in the record i mean a bass is a bass is a bass sure but you know i think a good fender jazz bass will work 100 percent of the time pretty much a good fender precision bass 100 percent of the time you know um we can get into, and I'd love to because I'm a bass player, talking about why I'd use a Hofner in place of a Precision or a Dan Electro or an Alembic or anything like that. I mean, there's all kinds of variations. But if, but if, if you come to a session with the Fender Precision or a Jazz Bass, you're not getting fired on that basis. Mm -hmm. But if you do walk in with some bizarre-looking thing it had better sound good you know and i've been in like i mean man you know i don't know how much they may have paid for that instrument but it just didn't sound good a bass and it's the same with a guitar it's the same with an acoustic piano it's the same with any instrument i mean a good instrument is a good instrument and you know uh it starts there it's the same as with a vocal i mean uh, you can put me on a $15,000 U47 vintage tube mic, or you can put Paul McCartney on an $89 SM57, and you're going to pick McCartney 100% of the time because his instrument is so great and mine is so poor. There's nothing you're going to, there's no amount of equipment that are going to make me sound good enough, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's just, that's the hard reality of it. You know, a good instrument is, you know, spend the extra dough. I say this every taxi road rally going on, I don't know, 22 years or something. We've, we've done it together, something like that. Yeah. I say the same thing, you know, get a good, get a good mic and have, you know, buy a good instrument. It's really, really important, really important. And you will save, you know, hundreds of hours in the studio, you know, have a, yeah, have a good instrument. It sucks because they, they tend to cost some money, you know. Well, I go, and, and have the right touch too, you know, a great drummer on a hundred dollar kit is going to sound better than a, a rookie on a $10,000 kit. Right. And, you know, um, there's a great string arranger. His name is uh, Jeremy Lubbock. I used many years ago. And he used to call me young Rob. He said this, you know, 
great guy, young Rob. Well, can we get live strings on this? And we don't have the budget for live strings. Well, why did you hire me? Was his question. I'll never forget this. Hmm. Why did you hire me to do this expensive arrangement when you couldn't use live strings? Because I had a choice. I could either pay a crummy arrangement and have good string, real strings, or I could have a great arrangement and try to do the best I could with synth strings. And I said, I wanted your note choice, you know. I wanted his note choice. That was the important thing to him. And that may, I don't know, you can look at that as an exception. And he wrote this beautiful arrangement, you know. Uh, and, and Derek Nakamoto, another friend of mine, just did a great arrangement for me. I wanted his sensibilities or the note choices, you know. And sometimes you make those decisions because, you know, you asked earlier about budgets. Now, there's a big one. You know, I want the arranger to bring out, you know those note choices and 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 some of the sample string libraries are so great now that you know that's that's a decision you have to make because it's a budget budget choice you know but in all of the cases i'm pretty much saying yeah you know you're gonna have to have a really good instrument you know and i think it's important you know real important um what's your favorite reverb plug in these days I've been using um, the Waves IR plugin, which is Impulse Response plugin, and it's I've used that because I have some really good impulse responses that I use. And I mentioned last time that I I took a snapshot of my um, dining room because it has the sloped ceiling. Right. I ran the speakers out, I put the mics in, and I, I captured that reverb. I use it on all the drums now, all my live drums. Have, I mean, that sounds so great. And, uh, yeah, so I love that one. I like the Valhalla reverb, which is really, really cool. And I like, um, let me go see what I have here on a session, and I will tell you. I'm going to open one while we chit-chat here. So... Um, you know, I have this template, many templates that, that have, you know, things that I tend to like. I'll kind of just save them somewhere. And um, we have, um, let's see. Three verbs I'm using most are um, yeah, this one's pretty good. So I like this thing called CSR, Classic Studio Reverb, and um, it's made by IK Multimedia. Oh, yeah. That's cool. I like R-Verb. A lot of, you know, this is one of the, you know, it's been out for 20 years, but it really is a great reverb. I really like it a lot. Um, and the Valhalla Vintage Reverb, I really like that one. That's a real nice sounding verb. Um. Yeah, yeah. Those, those, those are. You know, those come up pretty much all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't want to rehash our conversation talking about the LA three because we've probably covered that in two or three other shows. But I've got to say, the Waves LA three it doesn't sound exactly like the hardware that I used to have, but it sounds incredibly close. You can't hear me, huh? That's so weird. It's like every five minutes for some reason. I don't know what it is. I, I can't. You sound like garbled. Yeah. Can you hear me now? 
Hello, testing, one, two, testing. I'll be back. Okay, wow. so what did you say? Um, I'm really, really happy with the Waves LA3 compressor plugin. Um, oh, yeah, the CLA version? Yeah. Yeah, that's really, I use it all the time. That's that's fantastic. And I like the, uh, Jack Joseph Puig has one that's pretty cool, which is, um, you know, he has the Puig Child, I think they call it. I use that a lot. It's a great compressor. It's his version of, uh, of the Fairchild. Real cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we are, we've got a half an hour left. Um, I think I'm going to open it up to questions because I've been kind of ignoring the, the chat a little bit because I had a, a list I wanted to finish up. Um, so let's do that. If you've got a question, please type the word question in all caps so it's easy to spot as they fly by. I will do my best to get to as many questions as I can. Um, Yeah, Dan Weber, you won't be disappointed with the, the CLA um, LA3 uh, clone. Uh, here's one from Pat Wara. Rob, do you mix your own material and does that change your approach? Um, we touched on that earlier. I do. I mean, I mix my own stuff. Uh, yeah. I do now, but years ago, I wish I didn't, you know, it took a while for me to figure it out. And, uh, and I have a nice little team that keeps me, you know, keeps my, my, my eye on the target, you know, so I, I, I do, I do. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I understand this question. Uh, Jonathan, uh, you may need to rephrase this one. I'll come back to it later. Do you input the arrangements yourself when you buy them? I don't know what that means. I know you could buy an arrangement. Um, how do you battle hearing fatigue? Theo wants to know. Oh, great question. So this is the stuff that used to drive people crazy. So we'd be in the studio, you know, clicking off hundreds of dollars an hour, you know. I mean, this cost of the SSL. And um, now people know me, right? So it's a lot easier. But early on, you know, the, the way to fight fatigue is, you know, I'd, I'd mix for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, take a 15-minute break, maybe a couple hours, take a half-hour break, take lots of breaks. And it would drive people nuts because they think it's better for me to just be sitting in that, man, no, 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 no. Me sitting in front of those two speakers, you know, without a break, is it's insane, right? No, I sit in front of the speakers, I take a break, and every day at, you know, 4.30 or so, I have a quick coffee break, and you saw my son came in with a little espresso, which usually I'll take a break, I'll go out, I'll chill out, and I take a lot of breaks, you know, I don't sit there and try to, until you know, blood comes out of my ears, you know, we gotta <laughs> take, and every time I come back from a break, something reveals itself, it's like, oh, shoot, you know, I missed that, you know, and it's, it's the best thing you can do. Take a lot of breaks, you know. Take a lot of breaks. Don't force um, How do you make your 808 stand out in the mix? Well, 808s are, um, you know, if I have a good sounding 808, um, I don't usually have to do much to it. It may compress it a little bit or I may add a little like, um, 
lo-fi, you know, something like, uh, well, well, Waves has a lo-fi plug-in. I may add a tad bit of distortion. Yeah, but an 808 sits pretty good just as it is. I don't think it needs a lot. And that's, if there's one lesson I've had in life, it's like less is more, you know, and mm -hmm. do a little bit, just, just do as much as you need to do, you know. You don't need to carve an 808 unless it's just a bad sound or something. I think it's 808s, you know, early on, I didn't understand how to, how to really use them. And if you, you know, can, can rewind the clock to when they became really popular, you know, it, 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 it wasn't a kick drum. It, it's a new sound, isn't it? It's kind of like a bass, and it's it sits really low, and you know, um, and I've learned over the years that it has its own space. You just got to give it its own space, and it doesn't take much. So I haven't done too much. A little distortion, maybe, you know, a um, little compression here and there, but nothing more than that. No, not much. Um, how do somebody asked a question? It's kind of general, but it's a little interesting. How do you treat mid-range frequencies? Of course, that's instrument and context contingent. But is there any general way to answer? Well, you know, mid-range frequencies is really interesting because it's like you can always, you know. This is thing, you know, mastering guys. What did you do to my mix? Well, I added a little air up on top. I added a little, you know, <laughs> bottom. Okay, well, good. As long as you didn't touch the mid-range, we're good. <laughs> but it, it's funny because you can get away with adding a little, you know, 15K or something or a little air, and you can get away with a little 20 or 30, you know, subs and stuff. And, you know... Uh, but in the mid-range, if you start, you know, the difference between 1K and 700 or 700 and 500 or 500 and 2 or 300, I mean, those are pretty darn drastic. If you're, if you're not careful, you can really have a strange-sounding mix, you know? You really yeah. can. So how do you handle it, you know, with restraint? I, I completely agree. Anything between, like, 200 hertz and 2500 hertz the best thing you can do is take an individual instrument and roll that tape a thousand times and just sweep through those frequencies at like plus six and sweep it at minus six and just hear what that does to different instruments because yeah that's the danger zone that's what separates the the men from the boys without trying to be sexist about it uh, and becoming a pro engineer, when you can at your will command the mid-range frequencies, you've graduated to another level because it's, uh, it's a dangerous place. Um, uh, where did that one go? A can go a long way at any frequency, but those mid-range, right? That's right in the middle of your hearing range. That's why it's mid-range, right? Yep. You know, if you vocal and um you know wanted to poke out a little bit in the mix you know and you boost you know let's say two 2k or something half a db is a lot you know a db is a lot you know if you wanted to cut a little and you want to add 7k seven and a half or 8k i mean a db or two yeah it's it's a lot you know uh but if you start messing around with like uh you know in a snare drum boy if you cut 1k it'll if you cut a db or so 1k 
you know, it's noticeable. It really is. You know, it's a big deal. It can be. Um, this is a rehash of the question I didn't understand well earlier from Jonathan. Um, uh, he was referring to Rob's re reference to buying arrangements when he had to choose between a great arrangement or a string section. Does Rob input his own arrangements or does he hire someone? You're cutting out again. I think it was about arrangements and do I... What was it about the arrangement? Um when you have to choose for financial reasons, when you're buying arrangements, you had to choose between a great arrangement or a live string section. Um, do you input your own arrangements or do you hire somebody? So I think he's saying when, when you're using, you know, non-live strings, when you're using a string program, do you input the arrangements or do you hire somebody to write the arrangement? Okay. So I write strings too. I'm, uh, you know, I've done it for years. If I feel like I can, I'm the right guy for the arrangement. And you are cutting out a little, so if I if I didn't get the question, stop me. I do write string arrangements. I do write them out. I write them out by hand generally, and um, but I'll usually only do that up to maybe eight to twelve pieces. Anything beyond that, I won't do. So quartet, double quartet, you know that's pretty good for me and I will only do it though if I feel like I'm the right person you know but the part of the joy in making records is to work with other people so when I was younger I'd want to do it all and that was a mistake okay I, I'd rather if I feel like I really have to do it then I'll do it I'd rather call somebody and have them do it and and, and tell them and work with them on the arrangement that's the best way I could put it it's never that you buy an arrangement you don't just call, you know, David Campbell, who did Men in Black for us, right? So he did the arrangements for Men in Black, and I called him. We went to his house. You know, we worked through some, some parts of the arrangement. And, you know, um, there are certain things, you know, that have to that, that we're looking for in the arrangement. Paul Buckmaster, another brilliant arranger. I mean, my God. Uh, One of that, the very uh, best. Yeah, I loved him. In fact, um, we came quite close, and uh, and I miss him. But he's, um, you know, that's a guy that's just so brilliant, you know. It, it's almost <laughs> intimidating if you were to say, can we, you know, my God, if I were to say, man, can we, you know, can we change that B-flat to a C? I mean, you know, Taco has to muster up every bit of courage to say something like that, you know. And then he'll explain to me while I'm wrong, why I'm wrong. <laughs> but it is a fun process, and... And I think it's, again, it's, it's a bit of a team game. Uh, although arrangers, you know, like David Campbell and Paul Buckmaster, Derek Nakamoto, all these guys, I mean, they are just, you know, they are tremendous at what they do. And, um, and you bring them in because of the way they hear things. And they hear the movement and they understand how to put it in the section so that it translates right into the recordings. These guys have skills just like... A singer has skills. It's just a beautiful art. So, yes, I do my own when I can or when I think it's right. But I really enjoy having arrangers come in and work with them and, and then uh, especially working with live string players and musicians. I mean, that's a joy of my life. You know, one of them. Love working with, you know, real live musicians. Love it, love it, love it. That's why I got into this this thing, you know. Um. Remember Tim Devine? He was head of A&R for Columbia Records, West Coast, very famous A&R guy. 
Yep. So one night, many years ago, Tim Devine calls me up at like six o'clock. I was getting ready to leave the office. He goes, Lasco, come over and hang out with me tonight. I'm working late. I'm going to order the best pizza you've ever eaten in your life. Just hang out with me. I thought, okay, kind of a strange request, but sure, why not? So I go over to his office and he's got, who's the lead singer from the band Train? I can't remember his name. Uh, anyway, he's got the lead singer of Train. That's right, Pat Monahan. So he's got Pat Monahan on one phone, Paul Buckmaster on the other phone, and Tim Devine's in the middle translating what Pat Monahan wants in the string arrangement for what they're going to use. I thought it was a good story. Well, I just <laughs> want to show you this. Wow. How about that? See? Nice. There you go. <laughs> we did with Pat Monahan and uh, yeah, Capitol Records. I have it right here. I keep it right here. So anyway, the, you might have, I don't know if it was for the Grammy Awards. They were doing whatever the big hit record was at the time and, and they were getting a new string arrangement done because they were going to have live strings on the Grammys working with Train. So it was so funny watching I could hear what was going on in both phones. And, and Pat Monahan would say, Tim, ask him if he would do this. And, and Tim Devine, the A&R guy, would translate, but not exactly. So he was, you know, he was trimming the fat, as it were. It was really funny to watch. Anyway, I thought that was cool. But Buckmaster... Because you know, you know, you know, music, you know, it, it is a personal thing. And when you get a guy, you know, when a singer is singing behind the microphone and they're giving it, you know, everything that they can, you know, that's what musicians do. It's just, it's an expression, right? It's communication. And an arranger is the same way. A bass player is the same way. So if they really feel like they got what they wanted out of it, it's, a, it's, a, it can be a dance to, to make changes, you know, and it. You know, and that's part of. I think that's a beautiful thing. It's fun, but it is. It can be. It can be tricky. You know, it can be tricky. Yeah. Uh, several people have asked, "Do you use a submixer? Uh, I mean, a, a, a subwoof when you mix?" Yeah. Uh, Only subwoofers on the big mains. Okay, on the dual fifteens on each side, and there's a subwoofer. And you know, when I when I want to feel that thing, yeah, absolutely, it's a subwoofer. But generally on NS10s and stuff, no, never. Mm -mm. But that doesn't mean uh, anything. You know, guys use them. It's just it's just a matter of taste, you know. I'm looking for a good one here. Uh, can you talk about saturation? Um, when and where do you place it in the master chain, and is it a must? I don't use any saturation plugins on the mix bus, if that's what they mean by the master chain. I will use saturation on certain instruments. Um, well, let's see, what do I tend to use it on? Um, you know, guitars maybe, from time to time. Uh, bass from time to time. Um, Drums. Yeah, I guess I've used it on just about anything, but um, I, I find that uh, it's again another thing that a little goes a long way. Now, if I had a drum aux and I wanted to, you know, I do that quite a bit. I'll take the drums, I'll run them into an aux, and maybe I'll I'll add a little bit of saturation. Okay, that and that 
and that also goes a long way. Sometimes I just put on the, on the snare, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think that's fine. I like I like saturation; it has its place, absolutely. Uh, let's find another juicy one here that I think will apply to a lot of people. Um, Does Rob, well, the same person before asked what you charge for a mix, which I don't know if you want to disclose that or not. Uh, he also asked, does Rob only work with certain artists or is there somewhere where we can give him our business? Um, he's not cheap. <laughs> he's not like one of those places where you can send a song online, you know, and get a mix back for a hundred bucks. That's not Rob's thing. It just broke up again, and I think you asked me something about... Uh, somebody wanted to know what you charge, which you do or do not have to disclose uh, per mix. Um, and he's asking, you know, basically, will you work with small, you know, independent clients like taxi? Really, what is the problem today? Wow, very frustrating. Um, all right, I, I don't know what else to do other than just keep talking. Uh, Sorry, now I can't say again. It should come back in a second. It usually only lasts a minute. All right. There's probably some bird like a crow sitting on a telephone line outside of one of our houses. Um, how much do you charge per mix? Are you comfortable answering that or not? Can't hear me. All right. Did he ask uh, what I charge for a mix? Is that what it was? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I I charge in a very different sort of way than most people might might think. I don't like to think. I mean, there was a time when I charged a ton of money. Don't do that now. I enjoy what I do. I, I charge people appropriately. And if there's a song that has 200 tracks, it's a different price than something that has 20 tracks. And, mm. and uh, I like to see the, you know, it's, it's a little bit, um, here's what I tell everybody. You know, if you send me the tracks, I'll take a look at it. If you want a quote, then the quote is going to be really high. But if you want to send me the tracks, I'll take a quick look and I'll see, are they, do they need to be cleaned? Are they done well? Is everything laid out and organized? Is it, you know, is there 40 or 50 tracks, which is about standard? Is it 100 tracks or is it 200 tracks? And then is it like, you know, you know, there have been times I've quoted mixes and, and I've gotten 200 tracks and it's a seven and a half minute song. Well, that's, let mm. me tell you, seven and a half minute song is five times the work of a three minute song. And I've had a couple come in where it's like, you know, I'm really, I'm really sorry, but I don't do nine minute songs. I just, and I've had to pass on a few of those. It's just I don't have to, I don't have a, a month to mix a nine minute song. You know, it's just it's it's not a month, but you know, a nine minute song is a big deal. You know, a three and a half minute pop song. I mean, you know, I've done them for free for people that I that I like, and that you know, if I really love the song or the artist is somebody I know or or you know, I just dig it. You know, I'll just do it. I mean, I've done a lot of that. You know, but generally speaking, it depends on how much you know, how much time it is and, and, and 
and uh, you know, and what what the expectations are. So it's, it's just like anything else. But but every, we all charge about the same. I mean, you know, there's few guys that are off the charts, but but uh, you know, we're all pretty reasonable. Everybody I know. Uh, can you hear me now? Yep, perfect. Okay, good. I was gonna. It's because I just typed this one in a text to you, but now I don't have to. Do you ever use figure eight or omni patterns when recording? I do. I sure do. Yep. So um, omni, you know, is the most sort of natural sound of the mic, right? As you know, that if you put something in omni, it's it's not going to have the same proximity effect. And I like omni. Um, I'll generally put Omni in a room mic or something. A couple of room mics in a string room or drum room is nice. I have used Omni on any, even on lead vocals because occasionally it's worked better for the singer, but typically not. Uh, in figure eight, I always use figure eight under the snare. So I use the figure eight when I'm micing the snares and I kind of put the other end towards the beater of the kick, especially on a jazz session. You know, I really like getting that on a, on a microphone and um, you know for draw under the drum kit I've used uh, you know depending on string there's so many different techniques with strings and things figure eight uh, typically does come into play um, so yeah but I mean most guys that are recording at home are gonna just need a, a nice uh, cardioid microphone and and you're probably good to go. I, you know, I wouldn't get into too much goofy stuff if you're just making a pop record at home. It's, you know, right. I, yeah, that that's that's a different kind of level of engineering. And I would love to do a whole show on mic techniques or something. You know, as would I. I would, you know, using figure eight on a jazz kit um when you're trying to use far fewer mics and have more room and more eye contact and more vibe going on i many many times used figure eight underneath the cymbals and above the toms and just you know raise them up lower them down till you find that right place sound magical yeah and mics you know a lot of people um you know i, I get hired well not during covid but I get hired generally to, a lot of times just to record drums or strings or something because it's a lost art, you know. And one of the things that uh, people are surprised to see is my, my mic choices and the distance from the source. You know, um, my mics are a lot further away than you might expect they would be. And, um, and, and, uh, and I think that... Um, yeah, this, this, it's a lost art, and I, I would love to, um, and that's one of the things I love to teach my assistants is, is mics and mic selection, mic placement, distance, angles, you know, stuff like that, preamp, way to use a preamp and a compressor, and, and that stuff is kind of a bit of a lost art, you know. It really is. And I, and I love teaching it, too. I love it too. I, I there aren't many things um, that I could compete with contemporary engineers on today because I haven't pressed any buttons for thirty five years or whatever it's been. But mic technique is still great mic technique, and I've got to say I learned from some of the best, and I cherish that <clears throat> that knowledge, and uh, would love to go to a studio like a room like Sphere. And, and do a session with organic instruments 
microphones and but this leads to the next question which somebody asked a very intelligent question uh not that the others weren't but with so many samples are compressed already uh do you find that you just use the stuff right down the wire or do you still run it through a compressor an equalizer or treat it in any way shape or form so samples so samples are a different kind of animal so if we're talking about drum samples kicks and snares i use generally my own samples for everything and you mentioned sphere and i've been you know to some of the great you know drum recording rooms east west and others in the city where you know i've been able to record my own samples which is kind of what i what i use and even if there's a drum sample i might mix in one of my own uh, so that said a lot of these coming out of the box sound great you know they really, really do. And it's hard for me to knock it. And I don't, it's not that I want to knock it, but man, it kind of pisses me off that you can get a great drum sound by calling up, you know, <laughs> one of these, these, uh, you know, even Easy Drummer or uh, BFD or those. Things. I mean, the sounds are great, you know, they really are. And you can get away with them. And they not only can you get away with them, they're on tons and tons of hits. And drum loops, I love going in with drummers recording their parts and loops and, and you know man i just i just love doing that stuff but the samples today are great they're great i mean they're great and it's it kind of pisses me off i mean you can call up <laughs> ivory or something and there's a piano you know you can you know get symphonic strings and stuff and you, at the touch of a button you know it's 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 shocking how good it is it really is shocking. yeah the Vienna Symphonic Library uh, came out with, um, I, I forget the name of the program, but it, it's, and I don't mean to demean it or anybody by saying this, but it's kind of idiot-proof one-finger orchestra that really truly works and sounds amazing. And we featured it some at the Road Rally. It was breathtaking. Um, okay, we've got time for a couple more questions. Uh, what are your favorite monitors for making pop records? My favorite monitors for making pop records are my favorite monitors for making records. I use the same monitors for 31 years. They are Yamaha NS10M studio monitors. I use nothing but those. For big monitors, we use, at the studios, we have big dual 15s on each side with subwoofers. It's usually JBLs with TAD drivers and an Augsburger cabinet with TAD mid-range horns. So uh, I think, I think it's, I can't remember the mid-range horn, but anyway, um, that's pretty much the, set, the setup. I'm not a fan of the Tannoy stuff. A lot of guys do, a lot of mastering guys like it, but I'm accustomed to NS10s. And that's what I use, and it's not that that's, you know, um, I'll, I'll tell you, if you were to rewind the clock to where Hugh Padgham, who did The Police and Genesis and all those brilliant records, uh, and Bob Claremountain were two, the two guys. You know, I think mm -hmm. Bob Claremountain, I'm safe to say, invented the art of mixing, so to speak, right? I mean, the modern mixer, I think. And, um, you know, one of my, you know, idols, as is uh, Hugh Padgham and you know, Jeff Emmerich and those guys. But but I heard, I read in Mix Magazine many years ago that uh, Hugh Padgham used 
acoustic research monitors, which I had a pair, the exact ones. But Bob Clearmountain uses used the NS10Ms. And this is when you were working with me early on and was sleeping over at the house, remember? Yep. So in the basement of my, my mom's house were those two pairs of monitors, and I ended up finally just choosing NS10Ms when I came to, to L.A. and Because um, they were in all the studios. And then I became familiar with them, and, and that's it. So that's what I love. That's what I use. And um, many people have asked me to try monitors and offer to give me all kinds of free stuff, and I just don't even want to try it. I'm not even interested. I just love NS10Ms. I agree. I, I grew up on 4311s and transitioned to NS10s probably around the time you and I met, and I've not used anything. I'll, I'll check stuff at the end of the night in the big speakers just to send everybody home with a smile on their face, and I almost don't care what the big monitors are, but NS10s, it's because it's what I know. Yeah. Um, somebody asked a question a while back. I'm trying to find it, so I'm going to paraphrase it now. Um, I don't have it. My NS10s are at my office, uh, and because I've been playing around with Logic and, and trying these mixes to learn the topography and signal flow and stuff on it, um, I've been mixing on a pair of uh, Bose um, noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> which uh, have a, a very accentuated bottom. <laughs> but, you know, if, if I'm in bed at night and Deb is sleeping and I can't sleep and I want to mix, rather than getting out of bed, I'll just open up the laptop, plug in the, the headphones and start playing around. Anyway, so the other day I saw that Waves has control room simulations, uh, control, room, control room simulation software, plugins, um, one, the new one is for, uh, oh gosh, uh, I can't remember. It's the uh, studios in the church, uh, Ocean Way, Nashville, which is a great sounding control room. I actually got to hear part of a Faith Hill mix for like three or four hours at control room. It's a great sounding control room. And then they've got another one for Abbey Road. Do you know, have you ever used anything like that? Do you know anybody that does? I, I'm tempted to spend the 35 bucks and get one just because I will probably be mixing on my headphones for quite a while. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk control surfaces. <laughs> let's talk control surfaces for a minute. Um, the one thing I've quickly realized is I hate mousing or using a trackpad to um, adjust anything in a mix. I really miss faders and mute buttons. Do you have any sort of control thing? Ooh, we're going to get a visual aid right now. <laughs> the trackball comes out. Are you still using the trackball after all these years? There it is. The Shirelli Signature Series trackball. <laughs> well, in terms of in-the-box work, yeah, it's a, it's a trackball. Yeah. Can't stand, you know, those those pads on laptops. Some some kids get around. I mean, people can fly around on those things. It's just not me. You know, I prefer console first and foremost, but if I'm in the box, then I love the trackball. It's it's quick, you know, real quick. Um, yeah, I, I cannot get myself used to, I, I miss reaching out and grabbing a mute real quick, you know? Um, oh, yeah. Old habits die hard. All right, we've got time for one more question. Let me go find a doozy. 
be one really good one in here. Nobody with the big word question. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Okay. Are we thinking we thinking Road Rally 2021 this year? Well, it's going to happen one way or the other. Um, I'm happy. We're going to return to the glory of hanging out with people. I I, I hope so. Uh, I just I don't know. Of the year, I will have to say. Not, I mean, you guys did a great road rally, but not seeing people in person because I. I got to know so many people from Taxi, and I really look forward to seeing everyone every year and, and getting to hang out. You know, you know that that's that's a great thing. So hopefully, we can do it this year. You know, I've got to say, I've become very close with the fifty or sixty people that show up on Tuesday or Thursday for the quarantine happy hours, which is a much much less formal version of Taxi TV. And I can't wait to do a physical road rally and have a little private party where I can get those people that have all become part of like a, uh, I call it my little Manson family, uh, get them all together <laughs> for a private night uh, up in the presidential suite just so we can all meet face to face because it's amazing how close that group of people has grown over 10 months. Yeah, and, and, uh, and over the years, there's so many great, people that I've gotten to know and I I miss not seeing them yeah you know people that I don't maybe even some that I don't even know by name that I just see and wave to and hey how's it going and you know it's just such a great thing man it really is yeah so. I agree I'm uh I've got a shirt that says I was socially distanced before it was cool but if the, as much as I don't like being surrounded by people, I, I get a little claustrophobic. Um, and I'm not the life of a party, uh, of any party. I'm not that sociable. But I have such an allegiance and a friendship and abiding respect and love for taxi members that I, if there are days where I take a week off from doing taxi TV or doing the quarantinis, when 3.30, which is my setup time, rolls around, I, I feel a sense of loss that I'm not doing a show in a half hour. So I totally agree with you. The road rally must come back. Uh -huh. And having said that, I must thank you and say adios. Um, thank you for taking the time to do this. I know that... Thanks for having me. I love it. I always you love it. Always good to hang out with you and everybody that I you know, can't see out there in taxi land. Yeah. Appreciate well, it. Thanks for having me. I keep joking that we should just, I should go stand in my backyard. You should stand in your driveway and we could wave at each other. This is the most contact we've had in 10 months, other than standing out at the end of your driveway one night right. for 10 minutes. <laughs> it's well, let's, let's hope that everybody stays safe out there and we can get back to, uh, back to work and back to our, our normal lives and um, pray that this, uh, yeah, that we turn the corner and everybody stays uh, safe and healthy and, and uh, we'll get to see everybody soon. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, enough, you know, time to get back to normal. I agree. All right, Rob. Thanks, man. Say hi to the fam and uh, hope to see you in the flesh sooner than later. And thank all you guys for showing up today. Hope this, I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Sorry about the, uh, 
the bandwidth issues, but you know, it just happens sometimes. It always happens on my favorite episodes when Rob is always, you know, just like a spectacularly good guest. Thank you again. See you soon. Bye-bye, everybody. I'll see you quarantine happy hour people tomorrow, right back here. Same time, same channel. If you haven't liked this episode, please give us a like. Please subscribe to the channel if you're not a regular, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>